our metro bike system is an essential transportation system. So all those are still out and people are still using them right now, which I think is great. It's really important. And I think that speaks to your point about how it is fully integrated into our metro system. It's the same card. You, you do exactly that. I jump off the subway. When I come home from work, I use the same card to tap out a bike. I ride a bike to a station closer to my house. And it, it really makes all the difference. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity in our communities. My name is John Simmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative and your grateful host. It's wonderful to have you along for the ride. I'm honored to bring you my recent conversation with Alyssa Walker, a well-respected Los Angeles-based journalist and podcaster who literally walked her way into a fulfilling career. I always look forward to reading her thoughtful submissions on Curb.com. Perhaps many of you do so as well. Now our commercial break. This episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our monthly Patreon supporters, as well as our one-time donors. If you enjoy the Active Towns podcast and are in a position to contribute, please consider helping out. No amount is too small. I've included all the appropriate links in the show notes to this episode, or you can just head over to our website at activetowns.org, as well as our Facebook page, and click on the donate button. Without your support, I simply could not produce this podcast. Thank you so very much. Now, without further delay, here's Alyssa Walker. Hi, this is John with the Active Towns Initiative, and I am absolutely delighted to have with me here today, Alyssa Walker. Alyssa, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. We're in a really, really weird point in time. We are obviously in a worldwide pandemic with the COVID-19 uh, situation. And I just want to thank you so very much for joining me here today. You live in my original hometown. I'm a fourth generation Los Angelino. So I actually live vicariously through your social media posts. And I've done that for many, many years. I want to say I first started following you when you were blogging about really cool nooks and crannies uh, in <laughs> Los Angeles to walk in. So tell me something, how did you start to do that? I mean, what, what inspired you to start writing about these unsung, invisible places that were walkable or fun or exciting to walk about in Los Angeles? Yeah, and now I guess a lot of people are, are out walking or more people are out walking than would normally be walking and, and telling me that they're spotting things and, and I'm digging up my old photos from those times and, and trying to uh, re relive what it found like to discover them in the first place. Yeah, I lived in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, when I moved here 20 years ago, I uh, just kind of found a situation to live with friends of friends in a big old craftsman house in Hollywood and really love the area. And then moved into a really remarkable little tiny apartment um, that was kind of tucked in the hills right behind the Hollywood and Highland Mall, which, you know, I was probably goes right in the middle of everything, but still was enough of a raised elevation to say that I could live in the Hollywood Hills by like a, a meter probably. So I used to, you know, I lived alone and I at the time was not 
really didn't know much about transportation or didn't know much about like how the city was even working. And to get myself out of my house and uh, take a break from work, I would just do these rambling walks both down into Hollywood, which is changing very quickly at the time. It continues to change very quickly or up into the hills where I would find, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright mansions and, you know, all these famous structures that were kind of tucked into these places. But you really didn't know you really had to go looking for them or you had to stumble upon them, I think, um, were the two ways. And I do think that um, just those little neighborhood explorations, perhaps much in the way people are wanting to learn more about their neighborhoods now or how they work or or you know why the things are the way they are, I think I started, it made me very curious about how the city performed and how who made it that way and what were these rules that were governing why the 101 freeway cut through this beautiful neighborhood of these historic homes when it was built. So these were just the questions I started to ask myself. And then it really led to pitching more stories about transportation and urbanism and learning more about, about how, how cities were made. Yeah. So you actually saw pretty much an evolution of your career based on this. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for a lot of people, they ask how you decide what to write about when you decide to become a writer. And I don't know if any of us ever thought, you know, when you come out, come out of school, like I did go to journalism school, but I had kind of a roundabout way of getting to actually becoming to be a journalist. <laughs> and when people choose what to write about, it, it's so funny how people are, are so many people are just driven by money because you're trying to make money. So you kind of pitch the stories that you think will make money to the to the publications that will pay you, which is a shrinking number of publications that actually have enough money to pay people now. So I always just thought I was a general interest type of writer. And I think what what's really what's really cool is that I was not only able to focus in on something that just really grabbed my interest. I, I wasn't expecting to write about this type of thing. And I think the field kind of changed at the same time because there was a lot more interest in things like transportation, development, you know, the place I work now curbed kind of sprung up at the same time. And there's a, there's a lot of interest from people in this, these same kind of questions, like how neighborhoods are built. Yeah. And just as I sort of made a little bit of a shift, my background is in health promotion and disease prevention. Uh, when I was at the University of Southern California there in Los Angeles, I was really in the science side of what do we need to do to prevent disease? And, and oh, this is your from moment. A, then. Yes. Yeah, from, well, from a chronic <laughs> disease perspective, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I, I do. I do understand the public health uh, and the uh, epidemiological side of infectious disease. But really, my my niche was looking at at preventing coronary artery disease and, and diabetes and obesity and things of that nature. And then eventually, after about 15 years of, of working in that arena, started to look at the built environment and how our cities are designed and how it encourages healthy, active living. And then before I knew it, I was, you know, an advocate for walkable, bikeable places and good urbanism. And, you know, suddenly I started understanding architecture and I see a lot of that in your writing, too. Yeah, I, I don't know anything really about architecture besides the fact that I'm uh, interested in it. You know, I'm a fan of it. And I think it's, uh, I mean, I, I do know some now, but I, it, to me, it was, it, the way in wasn't like a design type of background or a, a training of, of planning or anything like that. But it was from the, from the user's perspective, like, does this 
does this work? Does this serve the community that it's in? Is it a pleasant place to be? Is it welcoming to all people? You know, these are the types of things that I was starting to notice living in Hollywood as it started to change. And very dramatically for for only for a very particular group of people that it was being built for at the time, right? So starting to understand the nuances in, in how those decisions could determine who was welcome, I think was was one of the, the first things I, I noticed. Yeah, and it's funny because uh, you you had posted something uh, just, uh, I think it was earlier this week, and it was sort of a a great representation of sort of the the framing of uh, both the built environment and nature. And you put a call out to folks uh, saying, hey, I know everybody's out there walking around and and experiencing their neighborhoods in a a new and different way. Send me your photos of, you know, new, interesting, uh, strange, uh, whatever photos. And the photo that you put out was like this uh, uh, palm tree that was framed, you know, in in some sort of a building or an architecture. So it was it was neat. Yeah, was it was it planted there on purpose? Was the building designed to have a hole in it for decorative palms? Like this was. I need to go find out. I need to go like investigate that building. <laughs> Yeah. So are, are you starting to get some interesting things uh, back from folks? I think I think what's so I mean, yeah, this is not to say that there aren't people who have always had to walk around L.A. for either out of necessity or because they actually wanted to before this moment. But I, I think there's a very valuable time that we're in right now where people are like I said before, getting to know their neighborhoods, getting to know certain streets, getting to, you know, go in those alleys and kind of duck behind places that they might not normally see, but that they might also start to notice a lot of the problems. And I think what's interesting from to hear from a lot of people is that they really didn't know that a street without trees could be that brutal to walk down on a very hot day, which has been 90 degrees here for the last two days. Or they didn't really notice that there had been, you know, cracks in the sidewalk that could be an accessibility issue. Somebody was saying they were out walking, you know, with an older person and they were like, wow, this is, our sidewalks are not built for this. And it's totally true. So I think hopefully maybe we were getting some, some good advocates into the fold for the battles that lie ahead when it comes to rebuilding our cities. Yeah. One of the things that I always had to chuckle about when I when I first discovered you and and the work that you were doing was uh, sort of the double entendre of your name and and your identity. A Walker in L.A. is just I love that. It was so cool. It took me a while to figure that out, actually. I did. So one of the things that I wanted to make sure to, to bring up in our conversation, because uh, I know it's a passion of yours, both for you personally and for your family as well, is transit and the ability to get around the, the Los Angeles area without having to get into a single occupancy vehicle. And L.A. has this sort of reputation of being a place that, A, you can't walk. I mean, missing persons told us, you know, that nobody ever walks in L.A., so they must be right. But then also that it's it's just cars. It's, it's cars everywhere. And yes, that's part of it. Now, whenever I fly into, into L.A., it's... It's a whole different world, isn't it? I mean, there's so much that has happened with transit over the last decade, and the future looks pretty amazing from a transit perspective. And I have to interject real quick here. There's something beautiful about seeing the rail lines coming back. My great-great-grandfather was a conductor on the red line. 
And so to be able to roll through Highland Park, which is where one of our family homes was in on, I think it's what the, is that the gold line that goes through out to, to Pasadena? Yeah. 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 It, that just warms my heart. <laughs> so. That's amazing. Yeah. Hearing the stories from people who are old enough to have uh, taken those those trains when they were there and now are riding on the new lines. It's just, those are just really remarkable stories. I love talking to anyone who who got to see both eras, I think, in, in action. Yeah, people who live here would probably tell you that it's not moving fast enough, um, our, our rail renaissance or whatever, our transit renaissance. And and you're right, the, the rail is, is very visible and and better funded and probably grabs all the headlines. We have a very exciting um, few things happening with like, because there's so few cars on the streets right now, they're speeding up our purple line subway expansion. Uh, so th- that will be ahead of schedule when, you know, and when we get on the other end of this and hopefully we'll still get enough federal money to finish it. That's all great. But at the same time, I would really say that our bus service and our walkability and the expansion of our bike program has been really maybe even come at the cost of this rail expansion, which just keeps getting all the attention and all, all the money. So it's great if you can live in a place that the rail expansion will benefit you, either if you are someone who can you know ride it to work or benefit from the uh, development that it will bring to a neighborhood where you happen to own property. But if you are not one of those people, you are living in kind of like a deteriorating system within this deteriorating system. And I, I don't mean to say that the Metro is not doing a good job with a lot of different aspects of they're doing this big bus study, for example, where they're, you know, really going to improve all these different service and uh, infrastructural parts of, of our bus system, which are great. Again, is that on hold because of what we're going through right now? Possibly. We've seen definitely like a, a lack of urgency around something like our sidewalks, which are the key to everything and a very basic sidewalk repair, sidewalk repair program that was implemented under a lawsuit, one of the biggest class action lawsuits in the country, I believe, as far as accessibility and from people who, a group of people who were getting hurt and the city continues to pay you know millions of dollars per year to people who are getting hurt and dying because of our sidewalks. And um, it's only like a very basic repair program. It's not even... As as we as we think of it right now, you know the sidewalks are too narrow as they are. They were too narrow before this started, but now it's very clear they're much too narrow to do what they're supposed to do. If if it's not just passing somebody at a six feet width distance away from someone else, but also in a way that can really make you feel like you can use them. As a family of four walking down the LA sidewalks, we often feel like we're crammed in. We're too close to speeding cars. There's there's not enough trees. You know all these other problems. So. A lot of these things have have been very slow to happen, even though we are technically overseeing the, I think it's the largest public transportation expansion in the country, I think, as far as like money and and what we're doing. But uh, little details and little things that would make everybody's experience better, um, no matter where, how they were trying to get around, I think are, are kind of falling through the cracks. 
Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, you and I both know this so well, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners uh, appreciate this as well, but it's the real key is that it's not one system over another. It's the, the concept of an integration of mobility systems. Part of what I love so much about the Dutch system is that their transit and their bicycle networks work hand in hand the ability to take transit to a location and then be able to, from that location, either be able to walk or easily bike to their final destination. Closing that loop on that final mile to two to three miles, obviously they say in kilometers there, but you get the picture, is, is just so beautiful about it. And one of the things that is unique about the situation in Los Angeles is you do have a little bit of that coordination with the bike share program with transit, which is analogous to what goes on in the Netherlands with, uh, you know, the train system, you get off at your, your final destination. And if that doesn't happen to be a destination where you have your own personal bike, or maybe a second bike, you can jump on the Obey feats. You can jump on the, the transit system bike check that out you can use that same card and check out your your bike and then ride that to your destination you've got that bike uh you know for you know checked out to to you for the day i get i think the way it works uh in that system so i mean there's a there's that little little glimmer of hope that you know that that's already been thought about with in los angeles yeah we We've got, I don't, that's one huge, I mean, I wrote a story at the end of uh, 2019 about how bike share was kind of the biggest untold transportation success story of the decade. Because if you look at the numbers alone for just not only how many bike share systems went in over the last decade um, across the country, but also how ridership went up dramatically in almost every place. It's been proven to take to replace car trips. It's been proven to boost transit ridership. There's only been a handful of deaths of people using bike share bikes compared to quite different death rates when it's people walking or riding their own bikes because of that, like you said, kind of of that um, hand in hand integration of looking at where the bikes are and also hopefully putting in the infrastructure to match where the bikes need to go. And I will say here in LA, that has been a game changer with our Metro Bike program and how they have started to really fill in the gaps. And just like you said, um, citing them outside of our, our Metro stops and kind of really thinking about where to place them along corridors to create this like seamless experience. And, and just there's it's mostly like central downtown LA. And then there's a few other pockets where they also have smart bikes, which are just like dockless bikes like we used to have that used to be around. Actually, our Metro bike station is a Metro bike system is an essential transportation system. So all those are still out and people are still using them right now, which I think is great. It's really important. And I think that speaks to your point about how it is fully integrated into our metro system. It's the same card. You do you, exactly that. I jump off the subway. When I come home from work, I use the same card to tap out a bike. I ride a bike to a station closer to my house. And it, it really makes all the difference, especially when you're you're thinking about all these payment models and, you know, juggling all these different subscriptions and stuff like that. That really has been a really amazing thing that the city has focused on and keeping it within, you know, what our city oversees rather than trying to find sponsors or doing all these things, which sometimes lead to companies like Lyft buying your bike share <laughs> system. Yeah. And I'm glad you, you mentioned that too, because, you know, obviously there, there's the whole changing of the world in terms of micromobility and uh, some of the 
other dockless bike share uh, systems that that popped up over the last uh, couple of years. And you know, obviously, we felt it quite dramatically a few years ago here in Austin uh, when you know they they decided to airdrop them in during South by Southwest. You might have actually been here <laughs> that year when they tried to do that because I know you used to like to come out here to for for South by Southwest each year. And so yeah, that's that's changed quite a bit of the landscape. And what's interesting is I'm not sure after we get through this period of time, this uncertainty with the the pandemic, I'm not sure where dockless mobility is. What's your take on that? Well, if you look at some of the places in like Hong Kong and China, and I think Singapore, although I don't I don't know if they're doing the same kind of things, you know, they all have very big uh, shared mobility schemes. And there was something I saw on the app where you could not just see where what bikes were available near you, but you could also see which of them had been professionally sanitized by a company that comes by and sanitizes all the bikes. So is that what we're going to start seeing? Are people maybe carrying around their own types of sanitizing wipes and stuff? I mean, or wearing gloves, I guess. I mean, to me, jumping on a bike share bike and just wearing gloves or something is probably sufficient. That'd be okay. But yeah, you do, you do wonder if it's going to be part of the same conversation that we're having right now about transit and social distancing in crowded subway stations or places like touchscreens or you're you know buying tickets and a lot of people are touching places but i also wonder too if the the need for these types of modes will be so critical not just you know for people to get back go back to work but also because of the cost factor because what i'm really seeing is if you lose your job, and for people who are losing losing work, you know, every week we have more bad news, it makes like the low cost of transit or perhaps micromobility compared to holding onto your car, like keeping a car payment if you're going to, and you might have to make a decision there that's, well, I guess I'll have to get by without a car for a little bit because I can't I won't be able to keep it or my, my, I won't be able to continue this lease and, you know, my calcu- financial calculations. And we already know that car dependency has made it so most jobs are not accessible by transit in the same way they are by driving. So that's really going to put people in a very interesting predicament over the next few months and into the next year or two. We already knew that all these people, I mean, so many Americans were in these very horrible auto loans trapped into these like very uh, high interest, like seven year auto loans, because it's so required to have a car in this country that you get a used car and end up spending like way too much money on it just to have it. So I think this is where cities can really step up. And for something like Metrobike, you know, offering like a discounted subscription or something for people who really just need to be out looking for jobs or picking up work or doing whatever they need to do. And then really when the when it feels safe to take transit again, and, and like there are many people, there are many people taking transit right now. And I, I we're, they're doing a great job protecting the essential workers that do have to take it, and especially the people who work for these transit companies. But when, when the workforce is allowed to go back to work in force and we feel that we can take buses and trains again and feel safe. We need more buses. <laughs> we'll need like the best service possible to make sure that people are being able to get where they need to go. So maybe we're going to see this in, I think in San Francisco, they've already redone the bus system once, you know, to, for the pandemic period. And we'll probably see them redo it again 
when this is over. And I think that's something what I, I hope we might see here in LA is that acceleration of our, this revisioning of our bus system to really say, okay, how are we going to get the most people to the most jobs for as affordably as possible? Yeah, I'd like to amplify a couple things that you mentioned there. One is, it's my belief that yes, micro mobility, these systems are absolutely essential coming out of this and into the future. I think it's going to be very, very important. I also think that we'll end up hopefully with a healthier mix of providers, uh, hopefully the fragile operators that, you know, the the numbers never worked and the investment money that was there probably was all smoke and mirrors anyways, that may shake out and we end up with a more reliable and more reputable mix of providers. I know some of the providers literally just pulled their their equipment off of the roads, really leaving a lot of people stranded in so many ways. And then some of the other providers stepped up and said, no, we're, we're not going to abandon you. We're going to stick with it and we're going to implement sanitizing procedures to be able to, to continue to operate. So uh, thumbs up to those providers. The other thing that you mentioned was talking about the bus systems and what better time or opportunity to give a glimpse into how to really perfect what a transit system, a bus transit system could look like when it's not stuck in gridlock. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have just dropped down our service here to Sunday service. So they've kind of like slowly gone, you know, really reduced for good reason, you know, for good reasons on, on their side, you know, their ridership is down. They also want to make sure everybody has enough space to stay safe. But then dropping the service is a little bit different because you're waiting longer for a bus again. You're, you might be on a more crowded bus if it's Sunday service, but, you know, but they're again, again, we don't, have any money probably we have to make sure that we can uh, weather it through a situation and and do the best we can for now but I love this idea of it reminds me a lot of when we had the Olympics here in LA in 1984 and we our goal for that was similar to what we're going through now they uh, wanted to keep the streets clear for they didn't they didn't want traffic to interfere with the logistics of getting people to all these Olympic events happening throughout the region. So they told people to stay home. And it's interesting even to look at some of the language that, you know, they were, they had like celebrities doing PSAs and they had uh, all this communication about working from home and uh, we're telling people, big employers, like how to either encourage residents to either work from home and, you know, this is before the internet or, or how they could flex their hours so they weren't traveling at peak time. So it's really interesting to kind of look at that history and what, how we've already really been, been able to make LA's streets dynamic just by encouraging some people to not move on it at certain times. And then we created this bus system that was just for the Olympics, kind of like a micro transit, regional micro transit system. And it used the RTD buses that we had at the time. And you had your own ticket that was part of your ticket to go to whatever Olympic event you were going to. And we could do that again. We could build this kind of very reliable, need-driven, demand-driven bus system use as before the, the traffic returns to streets in force. And we don't know how long that's going to take. I already feel like I see more cars out this week than I did last week, which is a little dismaying as our deaths continue to go up in Alla County. But I, I think looking to some of the solutions we've 
already had success with in the past to try to figure out how to move forward from this moment. And everybody said during the Olympics, not only was it you know amazing to see no cars anywhere, but the air was so much clearer back then too, just like what we're hearing now. So we can restart the economic growth and get people back to this feeling of security in their jobs and, and say, oh, we built this bus system that will allow you to do it. And it's going to arrive on time and the apps will be correct. And we, you know, our fares will be reduced maybe or free for, for some time. That, that would really be something. This is a brief break to catch our breath and provide a couple of quick reminders. As always, be sure to check out the show notes for helpful links to the programs, initiatives, and articles mentioned in this episode. Also, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on the listening platform of your choice. We're out there on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts, just to name a few. And finally, please, please, please share the podcast with at least one friend or colleague. It's so cool to see how our audience is growing. So let's keep this momentum rolling. The ultimate goal of the Active Towns movement is to help create safe and inviting environments for all ages and abilities that promote a culture of activity. Okay, that's all for this break. Let's get back to our conversation with Alyssa Walker. Yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned the Olympics. It brings back memories. So that was my freshman year at uh, at USC. And, and I'm also glad that you mentioned the environment and the air, the decrease in pollution, because that's one of the memes that has been circulating around the world is you know, the, the before the one to two week into the, the lockdown, the stay, stay in place orders, and then last week or whatever it was, that visual is so powerful for people to understand that nature can heal itself if we allow it, if we stop putting the pollutants out there. I'm hopeful this will resonate with people globally, as well as uh, people living in Los Angeles. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, yes, it's, it's remarkable. It's, it's really illustrative of how much that internal combustion cars are the issue for people who like to say, to point to different aspects or, you know, I, I get when you write about these things, people are always like, well, you know, but first we need to get rid of the coal power plants or first we need to get rid of airplanes or whatever. And um, I guess there are fewer airplanes fine too, but it's pretty clear when you're walking around LA today, the reason that our sky looks this way is not because they unplugged the coal power plants or anything like that. You know, it's, it's very clear that what uh, the challenge was for us was cars and the noise, I think, is also something else that I, it's just, it's just, again, remarkable to step outside and I cannot hear the freeway that is very close to my house. Whereas usually it's, it's kind of like this uh, omnipresent sound that's just kind of like hums throughout the day and that's, it's gone. It's that sound is gone. And sound is also very damaging to public health and, and something else that we don't talk about much about as compared to something like air pollution. But I think what you're saying is is something that I've really struggled with over the last couple of weeks. I can't look at that sky and not think of people who have died and people who have lost their jobs and people who are going hungry right now. And you only need to go a few more blocks 
further from that freeway in my neighborhood to a food bank where there are people who are lined up around the block to eat right now because they have lost their jobs and there's no real plan for that. In a, even in a city like LA where we're growing most of the nation's food within a hundred mile radius of the city. So it's hard to explain that it's hard to explain that I, I can't get excited about this yet. I, I would love to think that we could learn from these lessons and go back to when we go back to our jobs and go back to some some kind of not the not the new normal, not the new abnormal, a completely different world, I think, in a better world. It's hard for me to believe that we are going to be able to carry these gains into that next chapter without sacrificing something else that will be just as horrible. So I'm very, I'm hoping to be more optimistic <laughs> in the weeks that go ahead, but um, it's very hard for me to see that, that this is going to turn out well, even after we've gotten this glimpse of how it could be. And I know you feel this way, and I want to thank you for sharing Jeff McFetridge's article in the New York Times, the pandemic that has turned Los Angeles into a walker city. I'm going to read his last two segments because it, it encapsulates what you're saying. He says, when this is over, I don't want traffic to come back. I want all this time with my family. I want to hold on to this quietness. I want to see people walking in our streets and not feel like their presence is somehow related to the world's falling apart. Both beautiful and tragic at the same time. And I think, you know, as you, you know, said, you know, really hits the point is that we see this, we see the beautiful skies, we see the decrease in noise pollution, the decrease in air pollution. We're starting to appreciate our public realm in a whole new way, and yet there's this overlay of sadness, you know, of what it is. And so, you know, as a public health guy, I'm <laughs> I'm incredibly heartened by this opportunity to, for people to reconnect with their public realm and see a different future, but at the same time, realizing that so many people are hurting, both literally from an illness perspective, but also from an economic perspective. If, if their, their livelihoods have been taken away or have been severely re reduced, it's tough. Yeah, and this is where the infrastructure could have given us an edge on this to begin with if we had paid attention to it all this time. And in, in many ways, our infrastructure is what is making the problem worse for a, a lot of communities, especially here in LA, which with the way that we know that air pollution and what it does to your lungs makes you more susceptible to this disease and how certain communities, especially the black community here in LA, are dying at higher rates than, than other people who are getting COVID-19. And I think, again, like if we can go back to, you look at other cities like, you know, European cities, for example, that, you know, I just saw this video of like Berlin, just like put all these pop-up bike lanes all around, but they already had like, you know, this, these greenways that people could use to walk around and they didn't have to close the parks or whatever, you know? And I think that that, that really, the parks thing, especially, and the, and the fact that our 
streets don't normally just function as a, a linear type of lungs, literally, like the way, you know, we talk about parks at like Central Park or other parks, like that we don't have this like network of, of greenways or, or walkways or, or parkways where we can get from one place to another in a way that feels safe, healthy, you know, good on your mental health to look at, to look at trees where you can run into people or stop with your family, you know, and that's, that could be a resource that we could have been cultivating this entire time. It's not like, it's something like the LA River here. You know, we, we know that we are trying to fix this and make it better and turn it into this kind of part transportation, part park, part revitalization of it, this, you know, natural waterway that some people don't even really know is there. But we, we're still just taking such small steps to even get there. And even with all the attention on the river, that project has moved very slow and it's kind of been questionable what the real goals of it are. But we could we could start to do that. We could start to just really make our transportation corridors into these like tree-lined, permeable conduits for getting places and where people actually want to be. And that that's something we could we could have been working on this whole time. We haven't been. Yeah, yeah. And it's I'm always amazed when I visit Los Angeles. Uh, and I think the last time I was there, I ran into you at, at NACTO, at the NACTO conference. And I was there uh, for one day. I flew in and I was there for literally one night and then filmed the workshop that NACTO had uh, of the Big Jump My Figueroa project, the protected bike lanes that had just been opened. So I, I tagged along with a couple of the tours and filmed that, uh, which by the way, you know, what, what a great opportunity to be able to ride from downtown Los Angeles uh, down to the USC campus. And, you know, something I would have loved to have had when I was a student there in the 1980s. But the other thing that that resonates with me, especially uh, like a couple years prior, I was uh, I had one of my films in the New Urbanism uh, Film Festival and that opportunity to be able to ride my folding bike uh, around the streets of L.A. and understanding that Los Angeles is an incredibly gridded city. The L.A. Basin is when you fly in, it, it becomes obvious to you. It's it's all very linear lines and it's a grid for the most part that has is chopped up in places by freeways. But it's it's incredibly easy to ride a bike if you know that riding on the off streets, not the main corridors, you can ride along beautiful residential streets with palm trees and beautiful old homes, uh, some of them that have been fixed up, uh, some of them that had never <laughs> gone into uh, disarray, depending on which neighborhood you happen to be riding through. And I used to live not far from El Cholo's on Western and I used to ride my mountain bike back in the day through the streets and then uh, up the hills and then I would ride on the, the equestrian paths up uh, by the Hollywood sign. But I was reminded that, oh, yeah, there's so much potential that Los Angeles has. Being able to do some very quick, lighter, quicker, cheaper implementation it would be so huge to be able to say, hey, on these major corridors, this is how we could reconfigure things. This is how we can encourage. This is how we could create a, a more all ages and abilities type of network that, oh, by the way, helps integrate with transit. Oh, by the way, also with quiet streets in the gridded areas. So much potential. 
gets me excited, as you can tell. Yeah. I mean, we, my Figueroa, the project you're talking about, which is technically our first quote unquote, I'm putting quotes, complete street took 10 years, 10 years to really just like kind of just carve out maybe one very small semi-protected bike lane and have some, a little bit better infrastructure for um, bus riders. It's nowhere near what we need. And we do have a really great plan for not only bike lane impl- implementation, but kind of like a, a transit enhanced network, pedestrian enhanced network. We have all these things. Uh, city passed it. It's supposed to be moving forward. It was moving forward very slowly. So we we do have a plan. The question is really, are the leaders here focused on it or prioritizing it in any way? That answer is no. Um, we have a mayor now who is a mayor who is now the chair of C40, which is kind of this global consortium of mayors uh, who are focused on climate policy. So I would hope that once we start to emerge from this on the other end, and he has hinted that this is a priority for him is to use this as kind of like a green stimulus moment to put people back to work in ways that might reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. So I'm hopeful maybe on that aspect of it. And like I said, the the plan is there. It's really just an implementation decision. And you have some, you know, you have some communities that are really having to do this on their own and who are are desperate for these improvements and have been told that they're not a priority or that, um, you know, we're not planting trees there right now. We're not fixing sidewalks there now. We're not narrowing your crossing times on your intersections. You know, we're not changing all that stuff. So maybe now it will be a priority. Maybe now those things, even as we have to probably cut our, slash our budget for those things, maybe those can be rescued and, and shown that they are a priority. Yeah. And that's why I'm so encouraged by an opportunity to do things lighter, quicker, cheaper, and try to give people the opportunity to feel it, see it, and maybe reverse some of that backlash that in ultimately every single time a, a city administration, whether it's Los Angeles or the city of Austin or any city around North America tries to do something and then the haters come out and you guys had huge, very public, you know, lawsuits being filed and it, you know, Salita just, you know, would shake her head and she just like, we can't, it seems like we can't even take a step forward and try to do even under the auspice of vision zero and we still get our teeth kicked in. So I'm really hopeful that this will change the perspective, the paradigm of somebody who, I don't think we're going to change the haters. I don't think we're going to change the people who are just like, we want to go back to the way it was. We want to be able to drive anywhere. And by the way, we want to drive as fast as we can. I'm hoping this changes a paradigm of people who are on the fence, who were being swayed by the fear mongering that would take place. Talk, talk about that a little bit. It's possible. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the people who are who are leading those lawsuits and making all that noise were probably about 15 people who have a lot of money and a lot of time. They probably have just as much money and a lot more time right now. Um, uh, that will probably always be an issue. There will be just another wave of people who have more time and money. But I think I think the one thing that you kind of touched upon that I, I've been thinking about a lot too is is people who I'm seeing and and hearing, and again, this is not a discussion about like, you know, people who have had to take bikes and buses and and walking as as their mode out of necessity, but people who, like you said, have have a choice. 
I'm seeing people pull out their old bikes out of their garage or, and setting them up and fixing them up. And the bike shops here open as an essential business, for example. It might be terrifying to ride on some streets because you're right, cars are going faster, actually, because <laughs> there's no cars, there's no traffic, actually, in some streets. You're like, wow, that car's going really fast. That car's really going fast. Um, for the most part, the streets are quieter and you do feel kind of safer to explore maybe using a mode that you hadn't before. Of course, transit's going to be a tougher one down the road, but for people who have choices, it also will come back to, I think, this choice that we can make for for people who, again, who have the choice for working, for work habits, because we know the real problem is our commuter culture, right? It's people who are taking these single occupancy vehicle trips at these peak hours of the day and really aren't seeing any other choices or don't want to take a different way, you know, to to get to work. And we now know that a lot more jobs probably can be done from home than we thought before, or at least employers can be more flexible. I've heard so many stories of, especially city employees here in LA, where the policy was, you may not work from home. And oh, lo and behold, everybody's actually getting a lot more work done because they're not spending their time commuting every day. So I think that's it's some it's another one of those things. It's awful what's happened, but it's possible for people who have had the privilege now to experience what it's like to work from home and haven't lost their jobs and have still been able to be productive. The children at home thing adds another level of uh, challenges, but um, I think we'll start to see some changes around commuting habits or at least maybe more flexibility when it comes to how many days you go to the office or something like that. I mean, that, that, that could definitely come out of this. Yeah. Yeah. Alyssa, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that you'd like to address? Oh, let's see the children. No. <laughs> the children at home. I, I will say, I will say the one thing that's been pretty remarkable to see on on my street. And, you know, I live uh, on a street that is kind of just a, a slice of Los Angeles. We have so many different people from so many different backgrounds. We have single family homes. We have eight unit apartment buildings. We have duplexes. We have seniors. We have, you know, babies. To see, especially the children, we have like a, a group of teenagers that just skate, skateboard in the street, just up and down the block, like you would never have done that before because it, you were too. We were too worried about um, cars driving through. I'm taking my five year old, who just learned how to ride a pedal bike, on bike rides in the street because you might as well just practice with them, getting that like you know fluency while while we can. I'm seeing a lot of people with their very young kids just walking slowly, you know, like toddlers and whatever, just let them walk, walk slowly and, and, and on the sidewalks in a way that you don't have that fear normally when you're out in your front yard or on that little parkway strip, like you're not like grabbing them and, and yanking them back towards you. So I, I hope what, what kids, and I don't know how much my kids will remember from this, hopefully not much. The, with the school thing, it's very interesting because my my five-year-old has like a regimen from her school. They have like these Zoom chats to join and they have this online work to do and they have all these projects, but mostly they just want to go outside and play and and go for these walks and go for these bike rides. And I'm wondering if, if kids are getting a deeper connection to their neighborhoods and their streets and their sidewalks that we might not have given them during this time. So talk about another, you know, potentially good thing that might have lasting impacts is how, how our kids will 
remember what happened. Yeah, I would say that from what I'm seeing, at least on our streets and in this area and what I'm hearing from people across the country is that we are seeing more free range kids. I'm seeing some preteens that are exploring the neighborhood. Uh, yesterday, there was a little posse of, you know, three of them. It's the cutest thing ever because they're all wearing face masks and they're all riding. And in, in certain cir circumstances, their their parents have scripted them so well, they're all riding about six feet apart too. <laughs> and it's just, it's it's neat to to see kids exploring the neighborhood and because that's kind of what I remember as a child is when I grew up is is being able to explore on my bike and you know it, it wasn't a situation where we had to fear motor vehicle traffic um, I am aging myself a little bit uh, but it's, you know, it, I think it's important because there's also such, I mean, they're obviously a little, little older than your five-year-old, but I, we're, we are still seeing, I am seeing a lot of, you know, sort of that age group riding while uh, one of the parents is running alongside them and, or, or riding as well. So I'm with you. I, I'm hoping that that is something that if they remember anything from this period of time, they don't remember the the worry and they don't remember the the scary parts of it, but they'll just be like, yeah, that was really, really cool. And hopefully this is going to be an inflection point where they'll be able to experience a little bit more of this from this point going forward than they were prior to this. So you've been at this for, for some time. What advice do you have for people who may have stumbled their way into this podcast and they are not within our echo chamber. They are somebody who is grappling and trying to educate themselves and trying to, but they are passionate. They're, they are like engaged and they want to try to make their community more walkable, more bikeable, more livable. What advice do you have for those folks? What I try to tell people a lot here in LA when people ask something along the same lines is to find people who are different than you, who have maybe the opposite of the lived experience that you have. Find people that would never be the loudest voices in the conversation, that would never come to a meeting like you, that might not have time uh, at night or the privilege or the childcare to participate in, you know, an organizing activity. And just spend as much time as you can with that person. It might be a language barrier that you'll have to overcome. It might mean really going out of your way to make sure that you can have a quality conversation with that person. And it also really means listening. And I think that's what a lot of people forget in this conversation because it feels so personal to us, like our streets and our sidewalks and our neighborhoods and how, how we think they should be and how we think things need to change. It feels so personal because it's about your own, it's about your own safety, about your own family. It's about your own lifestyle. You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's so personal. Transportation is so personal. So we all think that our ideas are right and that they should happen as soon as possible. But if you speak enough with people who don't have the same experience as you, it might become very clear very quickly that the bigger problem is not the one that you noticed, but it's one that has probably been present in the community for a long time. And I think especially like on my street, what really got me to understand a lot of that was talking to 
the oldest people <laughs> who, who lived on our block and what they had seen and how they had seen the neighborhood change and how they used to, just like what you're talking about, see kids out by themselves, you know, wandering, wandering the neighborhood and, and kind of what they thought we needed to do to get back to that um, while solving other problems that have, have cropped up. So talk, find someone who is not like you, but most importantly, listen to them. Yeah. And I think that that is something that we can be hopeful that this will, this situation that we're in right now might be the platform for having those discussions and having that dialogue and taking the opportunity because what we are seeing here in our neighborhood and what I'm hearing from other folks is that there has been an enhancement of sociability while at the same time doing so at a distance. In other words, they're meeting neighbors that they had never met (laughs) before and they're striking up conversations. And, and so this might be that, that platform to do just what you're talking about, which is start to have a dialogue, start to have a conversation. And I have to believe that there is that opportunity then to be able to better understand one another and hopefully be able to counter sort of that reflexive knee-jerk reaction of saying no and that concept of the nimbyism and the resistance to change is where I'm going with this is that uh, so often, whether it's like the inclusion of a new code in in the land development code to be able to allow accessory dwelling units or, you know, to allow for the thickening of our housing stock. Uh, oh, no, we can't have that. That's terrible. It'll mean more cars and and parking nightmares and, you know, or it's the bike lane. Oh, no, we can't do that. We can't lose parking. We can't lose a lane. So hopefully this is the platform for being able to have more meaningful conversations where maybe for us as advocates, we do less of the talking and more of the listening. And for those of you who are listening to this, if you're inspired by these things and you're getting ramped up and educated on all things (laughs) active mobility and urbanism, Good on you. We're we're so stoked to have you aboard. But at the same time, you're absolutely right. We need to be able to listen to and, and, and appreciate and truly listen to our neighbors. And and now that our neighbors literally means quote unquote more than just our next door neighbor, because we're 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 venturing further out. Any final final thoughts that you have? I really hope we can emerge from this with a, a better vision and a better way forward. And it will take a lot of work from people over the next few months to make sure that that happens. I am so with you on that. Thank you very much, Alyssa. It's been an absolute joy to have you on the Active Towns podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I hope you are inspired and moved by this episode with Alyssa Walker with Curb.com. In the show notes, I've provided links to her podcast that she co-hosts, the programs that we brought up during our discussions, as well as her most recent Curbed article, which is a heartfelt account about what happened in her household after her mom came down with COVID-19. You can always easily access these show notes on our website at activetowns.org. And as a final reminder, please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any suggested guests, future topics in mind, or just to say hi. It's always great to hear from you. My email is john at activetowns.org. 
Well, that's it. Episode 20 is done and dusted. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.